0: We are going to be starting now a multiple, uh, a series of multiple sermons on the topic of eschatology as we work our way through this really critical part of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, but I want to begin by reading the whole paragraph of which these two verses are are just a part. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The title of our sermon this morning is Doctrine Makes All the Difference, looking specifically at verses 13 and 14. Doctrine makes all the difference. You wouldn't know that when you talk to many people who would profess to be Christians. They may not necessarily deny that doctrine is somewhat important, but by their practice, they often suggest it. The more, most important thing for many is, is not the study of Scripture. It's not wrestling through difficult texts. It's not pouring energy and time into learning about the, the deep things of God. It's more about spirituality. It's more about feelings. It's more about experience. And in some more extreme context, people will just say, just give me my spirituality and, and, and discard all this other stuff. We do not need this doctrine stuff that just divides, that causes arguments. We, we don't need all that. Just let's put that all away. Let's disagree. And all we need is, is our feelings, is our own personal faith, how we believe or feel Our way through the Christian life. But as we're going to see this morning, doctrine makes a world of difference. It makes all the difference in how you handle the seasons of life. And again, like I said, eschatology in particular is considered to be one of those areas of doctrine that is unimportant or needs to be minimized minimalized, set us off to the side, because we really don't want to argue over those things. And we can be like what Andy Stanley has said on numerous occasions, the very famous megachurch pastor from Atlanta. He said, church unity is more important than being theologically correct. But in the words of a Puritan pastor, indifference is the mother of heresy. Indifference is the mother of heresy. Indifference to doctrine, indifference to theological issues is the mother of heresy. And as we're going to see this morning in even just these two verses, verses 13 and 14, we're going to see that ignorance may not be necessarily the the mother of heresy in this particular context, but it certainly is the mother of sorrow. Indifference or ignorance of, of truth is the mother of all kinds of sorrow in practical living. Speaking of the importance of doctrine, John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said this, "The foundation of true holiness in Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel, what we are to believe." So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted true holiness and worship will also be neglected forsaken and corrupted now with that in mind come back to verses 13 and 14 and see how paul approaches the issue of ignorance doctrinal ignorance and addresses an important need that was among the thessalonians again verses 13 and 14 he says this But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in our sequential study of 1 Thessalonians, so let's remind ourselves of the context here. Uh, The main part of the letter begins with a thanksgiving in chapter 1. It moves to a a defense of Paul's ministry in chapter 2 and and then another outpouring of thanksgiving in chapter 2. Then Paul updates the Thessalonians from chapter 2 verse 17 to 3 verse 10 on, on why Paul couldn't return and and updates the Thessalonians of Paul's own heart for those dear converts. And then at the end of verse 10, he makes a comment. Paul says that he prays night and day, eagerly longing that he might return so that he could supply what was lacking in their faith. Now, this was an amazing church. The church was only letter, and yet Paul holds this church up as a model in so many different ways. It's his most intimate of letters, his most personal and warmest of letters. So Paul loved this church. Nonetheless, he saw, specifically through a report that Timothy had brought, that this church still had a lack. There still was something lacking in their faith. And then he moves on in chapter 3, verses 11 and 13. We looked at this, Paul's model prayer. He prays then specifically for the things that they lacked. And then he moves on from that prayer, beginning in chapter 4, and going all the way to near the end of the letter, all the way from chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, verse 22, is his response, his his effort to supply what was lacking. He couldn't do that in person, and so he goes to the option of writing this letter, divides that that knowledge that was necessary in light of the lack that was in the Thessalonians' faith. So when we look at this section of the instructions for what is lacking, we've looked at some of this already. For example, we looked at the first section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. We've gone through that section already, and in that, Paul deals with a couple of issues that were important, primarily related to God-pleasing conduct. There was some weakness there in understanding uh, sexual purity. There was weakness also in understanding brotherly love. And so Paul provides instructions in those areas as it related to God pleasing conduct. In the next section, of which we're beginning today, he deals with instruction regarding the dead in Christ. That's going to be a very important phrase dead in Christ, those who are asleep, in just. We're going to look at that phrase a lot over the coming uh, series, the sermons in this series, as Paul deals with their grief. He deals with their faint-heartedness over an issue of of, of significance. This is not a, a small issue, but they didn't have the right understanding, and so were unnecessarily burdened by concerns. And so Paul will deal with that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul will give them some much-needed reminders and correction regarding the day of the Lord, and then, as we will see later on in the year, we will look at some of his closing exhortations regarding church relations. But our, our focus now is going to be in this crucial section of chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Now, in for verse 13, Paul begins, therefore, to treat this third major area of deficiency related to the Thessalonians' faith. Their morality as it pertained to sexual ethics was one of the areas. Their understanding and protection of brotherly love was a second area. And now we see the third deficiency treated beginning in verse 13, and it is related specifically to their understanding of future things and how those future things related to the present moment. And this deficiency was manifested over two areas. First of all, it, it was manifested over their excessive sorrow over deceased believers. They were excessively sorrowful over the passing of some of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul has to deal with that issue because it was not consistent with truth. He deals with that and then he's going to, I've already mentioned in 5 verses 1 to 11, he's also going to deal with some of their unwarranted concerns regarding the day of the Lord. They, they had some confusion over the purpose of the day of the Lord and they had some uh, wrong understanding of how that day of the Lord related to them as those in Christ. And so Paul is going to deal with those. Now in 4 verse 13 to 14, the verses that we are going to look at this morning, we're going to walk through this now very carefully because doctrine does make all the difference. There is clarity in these words, there is importance, significance in these words for our lives today. Eschatology is always practical And here we have it spelled out for us. And he's going to set the tone here in verses 13 and 14. And as I've already mentioned, here in these verses, Paul identifies a key problem. The Thessalonians were in despair over the fate of fellow believers who had already passed away. In the six months of that church's existence, not a lot of time, we, we, we find out that since that church had been planted to the time that Timothy visited and then brings back this report to Paul about how the Thessalonians are doing in that small, brief window of time, there were a, a number of those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ who had turned from their idols and come to worship the living and true God that some of those had died Some of those had passed away. And there appears to be, on the part of the Thessalonians who remained, the the surviving believers, there seemed to be that they, they they felt that these deceased believers were now somehow at a disadvantage related to the future. They were waiting for the return of Jesus. We, we, we saw that back in chapter 1 verse 10. You can turn there quickly as Paul summarizes the, uh, the, the conversion of the Thessalonians. And he speaks there in verse 9 of how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the the Thessalonians had a vibrant hope. In fact, you can go back to verse 3, and Paul talks about in 1 verse 3 how this church was marked by a steadfastness of hope. So the problem isn't that they had no eschatology, they had no view of the future whatsoever. No, they did. They were waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ. But what we find out here and as Paul begins this section is that they, they believed that if someone died before Jesus returned to take them, they would somehow miss out in the future age. they would not be alive to meet Jesus in person, uh, they would not be there to receive their resurrected body, and so they would somehow exist. In the future age, at a disadvantage, and it was for that reason that the Thessalonians were grieving and you can put yourself in their shoes, and you could think of brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed away if you had this conviction, this belief that somehow they those deceased brothers and sisters would not share in the glories to come, to the fullest, because they were not alive, that would affect you. In fact, it would even affect your own view of yourself. What happens if that happens to me? What happens if I die before Jesus comes back? Will I miss out if I don't stay alive until that special moment? Now that's what was going on in the Thessalonian congregation, and Paul, as this skillful pastor-theologian, he cares for their grief, while at the same time showing how right doctrine is the solution to their sorrow. Now in many ways, what we see in this section, but especially in verses 13 and 14, is, is really, it, it's, a, it's a case study in wonderful pastoral shepherding. Paul's love for the Thessalonians. He does not come at them with rebuke. He does not come at them with ridicule. He does not come at them with a heavy hand. Instead, he recognizes their grief. He does not minimize it, but he certainly will restrict it. And we're going to see how he does this. First of all, as as he cares for these dear believers in Thessalonica who were wrapped up in very profound grief. First of all, Paul emphasizes the importance of accurate knowledge. He's going to show us you can't let feelings and misunderstandings get carried away. And even in that, there's a lot to learn from it, and I just encourage you to think through this just from a bigger perspective how often we will allow anxiety to consume our lives without ever stopping to think, okay, what is the truth on this issue? What is the truth? What is accurate knowledge? Instead, we are so prone, and our flesh loves it, to just suck us in to this ignorant anxiety. This blind mindless kind of worry, and Paul is going to show us there is an importance here in having accurate understanding. And then secondly, and that's going to be in verse 13. Secondly, in verse 14, Paul will show how fundamental doctrine, basic doctrine, essential doctrine, provides the answers to life's dilemmas. He's going to show us the the how these doctrines that we really confess, relate to very practical issues in our lives. Our problem is, is that we just don't make the logical connection. Uh, we might say, well, I'm a confessional Christian. I have a confession that I might pronounce regularly even. But that's not enough because we can do this glibly with our lips and never think the next thought. And Paul is going to help us see that with some of these fundamental doctrines, there are profound ramifications, and what is incumbent upon us is to think the next thought, to draw out the necessary implication. So let's look at the first of these. In verse 13, Paul emphasizes the importance of accurate knowledge. He emphasizes that as life goes on, especially in a cursed world, with a lot of uncertainties and struggles and groanings, accurate knowledge is essential. Accurate knowledge is essential. He says this in the first half of verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Again, here you have Paul's pastoral heart that is That is on display he cannot bear it that these Thessalonians are struggling with this particular issue. We do not want you to be uninformed. he says we do not want you to be uninformed, and he acknowledges his responsibility first and foremost as an apostle who is an instrument of divine revelation, sent to bring apostolic doctrine to this to ensure that the churches would believe the right things. But he's also a a pastor, a shepherd, and he's also just a a brother in Christ who loves this Thessalonian Thessalonian, uh, congregation. And you see this coming out from from Paul many times as he acknowledges this responsibility. He'll repeat this kind of a statement many times. For example, Romans 11 verse 25, he says this to the Romans, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Or in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. That our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware. Over and over, Paul says, he cannot live if there is an ignorant revealed truth. An ignorance of of truth that is to be understood. And what's interesting here, and, and this really is the first time in the letter, Paul points to a distinction here. If if you remember our previous sermons, one of the more common phrases or clauses that Paul uses as he writes is that clause, just as you know. He repeats it many times just as you know, for you yourselves know, as you know, just as you know, for you yourselves know, as you know. And even just prior to this, in verse 2 of chapter 4, for you know. But here is the first time where Paul speaks of their ignorance. In fact, the word there for uninformed is actually the word from from which we get uh, the word agnostic. Agnaio. It it means to be unaware, to be ignorant. It's certainly a a positive thing in, in the usage in the Greek language. Uh, to be unaware, to be ignorant. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Here he acknowledges that now is something they don't know. Something that they're ignorant on. Their convictions are wrong. Their understanding is misplaced. And this was a definite lack in their faith. Now, what were they ignorant about? Uh, what was it that that marked their misunderstanding. And he goes on to say it very clearly. He says about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. Very fascinating description. We we don't want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be agnostic about those who Asleep. Now, what is he referring to here? In fact, if you remember from our read of this text just a few moments ago, Paul is going to repeat this very same phrase three times in in, in successive order in these verses. He says it in verse 13. He says it again in verse 14. He says it again in verse 15. He talks about those who have fallen asleep or, or those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. Who are they Well, eventually we get to verse 16, and Paul makes it very clear who he's referring to here. If you look at verse 16, you have this phrase, the dead in Christ. So he says in verse 13, those who are asleep. He says in verse 14, those who have fallen asleep. He says in verse 15, those who have fallen asleep. And then finally, in verse 16, he says it more directly, Christ. So that's the description here of those who have fallen asleep. And so we ask, why does Paul not just say the dead in Christ? Those who are dead, those who died in Christ, why didn't Paul just state it directly? Cut to the chase, Paul. What he's doing here is is using what we call a euphemism. A euphemism is when you speak of some difficult reality, some harsh reality, and you find a way to express it in a more pleasant way. We do the same thing in our language today, specifically about this issue. You probably don't go to someone whose loved one has been on the verge of death, and you don't just ask them, hey, did your loved one die? We, we just don't do that. Even as Christians, we don't do that. And it wouldn't be right for us just to speak that way, as Paul shows us. We, we ask it in euphemistic language. Did your loved one go to be with the Lord? Did your loved one pass away? It's, it's what we call a euphemism. And, and Paul uses that same euphemism style here to speak of death as he begins talking about this very, very important issue. Now, why does Paul do this? I think we could say that part of it, a large part of it, is his own pastoral tenderness. As he raises the subject, as ignorant as the Thessalonians were, as misguided as they were in their their, their, their connection, connections, connecting the dots between eschatology, present-day life, death, and so on, as, as ignorant as they were, Paul... But certainly, there is is a more definite reason for this, and it connects with the broader context here. Paul uses the euphemism to fall asleep because it perfectly fits the point that he's trying to make. They've fallen asleep because, you know, in in everyday language, in everyday language, we, we know that when a person sleeps, the body lays down. You know, unless you're a horse and you can sleep standing up, uh, sometimes it feels like that. Uh, you know, you're sleeping standing up, but not advisable. But you lie down, and and that is a a picture of of death as well. You lie down, but when you wake up in the morning, you rise, you get up, and so Paul uses this analogy of sleeping because. It perfectly reflects the truth of what he's going, related to death and the resurrection. That the body will lie down, but it will not stay down. It will sleep, and then it will get up. And so this euphemism is is perfectly suited for what Paul is dealing with here. And by the way, this is something that Paul uses elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be another text that we're going to be going to as we study through 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following. And Paul says this in verse 20. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Same euphemism, because that euphemism pictures this conviction, this knowledge, this doctrine of death, as it relates to the body and the future resurrection. Now, that will raise a question here: uh, the question of of souls. Some have taken Paul's euphemistic language and some other texts in Scripture and have have tried to to to, to make those texts teach the idea that. There's something called soul sleep in which at the moment of death, the soul of a believer will enter a state of unconsciousness and remain in that state of unconsciousness until the body is resurrected. There's The, the, the whole uh, church called the Seventh-day Adventists believes in this idea it's unbiblical, it's unsound, it is not consistent with scripture, but the, the teaching of, of soul sleep is, is, as I've said, that the soul is so connected to the body in, in consciousness apart from it, and therefore at the moment of death, the soul enters unconsciousness and remains such until Jesus comes to give the resurrected body, at which point The soul then arises, and the soul becomes conscious once again, together with the resurrected body. But this is wrong, and and I'll just list two reasons right now. We don't want to do a deep dive into this, but two reasons why soul sleep is is unbiblical. The first reason is this. In verse 16, if you look just a few verses ahead to verse 16, Paul will describe the Solution to the sleep, he says. They've fallen asleep, and here is the end point of the sleep. And what is that end point? When does when, when does the sleep end? And Paul in verse sixteen uses the verb right at the end of verse sixteen. Will rise, speaking of the resurrection. It's the verb anistemi. Anastasis, in fact, even the name Anastasia comes from this. It has the idea of, of resurrection, to rise again. Now, I say it's important because when you study that word, that verb, the, the Greek verb and its noun, whenever you look at it and find it used in the New Testament, it never refers to a spiritual reality. It always refers to a physical body. It always refers to a physical body. And so, therefore, because it only refers to a physical body, therefore the rising again can only refer to the body and not the soul. That's one argument that's very important here. But then there's a broader argument that is especially important here. And that is the fact that, uh, that in, in Paul's teaching elsewhere, he makes it crystal clear that at the moment of physical death, the soul immediately enters the presence of the Lord. So for example, write this down. Second Corinthians 5 verse 8. Second Corinthians 5 verse 8. Paul teaches this to the Corinthians. He says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and, what's the, half, the second half of that? And to be present with the Lord. Paul makes it unequivocal that the soul can exist apart from the body and does remain conscious. It is not a, a state of unconsciousness, but rather that moment Paul discusses here, this idea of absence from the body, is to be at home with the Lord. To be with the Lord and to to that that idea of being at home as the idea of you're you're in the presence of your home, you're conscious and you enjoy it. Philippians chapter 1 is another text that I'll mention here, read through it briefly as a response to this idea of soul sleep. Philippians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23, another key text where Paul makes it abundantly clear that there's no such thing as soul sleep. Philippians 1, 21-23, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart Now what he's referring to there is depart from this earth, from this body, to depart and be with Christ. Not merely in Christ as a status, but with Christ in His actual presence. And Paul goes on to say, for that is very much better. Summing this up, Charles Hodge, theologian, said this in in responding to the idea of either soul annihilation at the time of death or soul sleep. He says this, quote, "...the Protestant doctrine on the state of the soul after death includes, first of all, the continued conscious existence of the soul after the dissolution of the body." This is opposed not only to the doctrine that the soul is merely a function of the body and therefore perishes with it, that's materialism, but also to the doctrine of the sleep of the soul during the interval between death and the resurrection. So Paul, is, is by his use of this euphemism, is in no way saying that the souls of the deceased are somehow in this unconscious state floating around somewhere as they spiritually sleep. Not at all. When he uses that term, those are asleep, he is merely referring to those whose bodies are temporarily lying in the grave, but those bodies will one day rise again. Now it does raise another question here. Paul refers to those who had fallen asleep. And again, like I said, this wasn't a long period of time that separated the planting of the church from the writing of this letter. So the question is immediately asked, well, how did this happen? How could there be these members that had died in such a short period of time and had caused such a great concern on the part of uh, of these Thessalonian believers? And there's various explanations for this. We ultimately just do not know. One explanation, some have sought to connect this with some natural disasters that had taken place in the province of Macedonia at the time, whether that be earthquakes or things like famine and, and, and drought and so on, that perhaps some had died out of starvation, some had perhaps died because of, of, of some kind of plague, but there's really no proof for that. And another uh, suggestion that's made from a little bit more basis in in the biblical text is that they died because of martyrdom we've already seen throughout the letter so far that those who came to faith there in Thessalonica did not find it easy they were opposed we go back to chapter 1 verse 6 and we read of how those new converts came to faith having received the word of the Lord in much tribulation and the idea there is not just some tribulation. But Paul emphasizes the fact that it was exceedingly difficult to be a Christian in Thessalonica at that time. And then you go into chapter and you see in verses 14 and 15, Paul speaks of of how the word has had such an impact in the lives of these Thessalonians because these Thessalonians uh, had become imitators and they imitated the churches that were in Judea because just like the churches in Judea, the Thessalonian believers, too, suffered at the hands of their countrymen. And we know from the book of Acts that there were martyrs in the early church there in the among the churches in Judea. Stephen was the first, and there were others. Paul himself was responsible for the martyrdom in, in his pre-conversion years. He was responsible for the martyrdom of Christians. So there is a connection that suggests that perhaps some of these deaths were due to such fierce persecution that their lives had already been taken. Now that again has more basis, but ultimately we just don't know. It seems that if they had died for the faith, Paul would have made a more explicit reference to that, especially in this context. He doesn't. He never explicitly connects the opposition and hostility and ostracism to actual physical uh, martyrdom. He never says that in his letter, so we just can't be sure. Ultimately, we just don't know, but all we do know is that some believers had died. Now... Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about them. So what does he say? He says this, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, this is really important. Second half of verse 13. Here's his purpose in addressing this issue, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now, Paul introduces here his purpose. This is why he instructs, not just to make a theological point, he sees that his theology is exceedingly important for the well-being of their own state. He writes, so that you will not grieve. The, the verb there, to grieve, means, means to be sad and, and distressed. And it was that common verb used to refer to, to the experience of loss. Now in this text, it's important to note that Paul does not prohibit Grieving. He does not say, so that you will not grieve, period. He does not say that. In fact, if you look at Philippians chapter 2.27, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. We see even Paul, when, when confronted with the reality of the, or the, the possibility of death of, of one of his own team members, he openly confesses how he would grieve. Philippians seven, speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul says, for indeed... He was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also in me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul very openly states that if Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have sorrow upon sorrow. We look at the shortest verse in our Bibles, right? John chapter eleven thirty five. Jesus wept in response to the sorrow that he saw among the family of Lazarus. He wept. Romans 12.15 calls upon us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. No, Paul, doesn't, Paul does not prohibit the grieving, but he does limit it. You could even say this, he sanctifies it. He says, we do not grieve as do, in the same way that, or in comparison to the rest. Literally, the hoi polloi. The hoi polloi. We do not grieve as they do. And he defines them very clearly here as those who have no hope. Those who have no hope. He's not referring to here those who... who who say they have no hope, but he's referring to an objective reality. If you're outside of Christ, point blank, no matter how optimistic you are, no matter how you exercise the power of positive thinking, Paul says you have no hope. just black and white reality. You have no hope. If you're not in Christ, you have no hope. The best you have is a pipe dream. It's interesting when you look at Greek literature at this time, You know, some would believe in the, the deification of the soul, that you'd somehow become like the gods. The Greek philosophers would talk about the immortality of the soul, but what that meant, they, they didn't really know. It's all very vague. And others would just believe in annihilation. You died and that was it. In fact, what's interesting to note is to, 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 to read some of the inscriptions on gravestones. That always says a lot. Always tells you what people believe about the most transcendent things in life. And you can look at some of the gravestones from this period of time, and, and some of them are, are fascinating, and it shows just how hopeless they were. One of the gravestones, or actually, this is a phrase that appears on many, so much so that it was actually, it's Latin, and it was abbreviated. It must, much like our IAP, rest in peace. They abbreviated this saying, which goes as follows, I was not, and I was, I am not, and I can Wonderful view of the afterlife and reality and transcendent things. Another one said this, we are nothing. See, reader, how quickly we mortals return from nothing to nothing. Another one said this, if you want to know who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. They were without hope. And so the question is, why were the Thessalonians grieving like this? Why were they grieving like this? One commentator explains it this way, the most likely explanation is that the Thessalonians' confusion over how precisely the one eschatological event involving the resurrection of deceased believers coordinated with other future events Involving Christ's return, and that lead died would at some kind would be at some kind of disadvantage at the parousia, the return of, of Christ compared to themselves who are still alive. But, but here's what was happening. Because of their ignorance, they were mourning just like those who wrote those inscriptions on the tombstones. They were mourning, thinking that these deceased believers somehow would miss out on something. And certainly, when you have that inaccurate knowledge, and you follow the the logic of that inaccurate knowledge, you're brought to this place of hopelessness. And that's where the Thessalonians were. And Paul says, listen, you don't need to grieve like that. Realize you have hope. And think through how that hope affects your view of death. Point here, verse 14, Paul shows how fundamental doctrine provides the answer specifically to this question. Paul shows in verse 14 how fundamental doctrine provides the answer. And this is why doctrine makes all the difference. We dare not live in a state of ignorance over these things. It leads instead to hopelessness and grief. Indifference and ignorance is the mother of all sorts of sorrow. But conversely, awareness, acknowledgement, and thinking through how doctrine impacts life will provide the answer to life's most transcendent issues, to life's most troubling dilemmas. He says this at the beginning of verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the the conjunction for here now introduces the basis for the previous. Why are believers not to grieve over other believers as the lost grieve over their lost? Verse 14 provides the direct answer. And he says, he begins by saying this, or couching this idea in a conditional sentence, an if-then sentence. Now, when we use conditional sentences, we can accomplish different things through those conditional sentences. Uh, We can merely describe a potential, and if that potential happens, then something else will happen. But we don't know if the the potential will, will happen or not. You know, if If it rains this winter, we will have water next year. Well, we don't know if it'll rain here in California this winter. It's just a potential. And if the potential comes true, then we'll be able to take and water our lawns next summer. But that's not how Paul uses the conditional sentence here. In the Greek language, it's a lot more specific than in our English conditional sentences. In fact, how he words it, indicates that there's no probability here. There's only certainty. In other words, what he says is this, if we believe, pause, and we do, and we do, he assumes that this is true. And as we're going to see, he assumes that this is true because anyone in that Thessalonian congregation, if they were in Christ, they believed this. They could not deny this, what he's going to say. He says, if we believe this, and we do, you are in Christ, you must believe this. There's no other option to believe this. This is is what it means to be a Christian. And then he goes on to say this, for if we believe, and here's the substance of the belief, that Jesus died and rose again. This is a profound summary of, of the apostolic preaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We even heard this morning, you could add on to that, the ascension as well, as Paul Twist so wonderfully expounded for us. But if you would take it and put it, boil it down and, and look for the, the key elements of apostolic preaching, the basis of the Christian creed, the true belief would be this, we believed we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. These two verbs are the two legs upon which stand all of Christian hope, all of Christian life We we, in the death of Jesus. and, And that is code word for atonement, that Jesus died. And he didn't just die because he fell down a cliff. He died for the atoning of sins. And then number two, we see here that he also rose again, speaking of the victorious resurrection, that this was satisfying to a holy God, and therefore Jesus was raised for our justification. This is the the basis of the Christian faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You find that throughout the preaching of Paul in the book of Acts, you find it throughout his writings, you find it through all the the New Testament writings. You could look back at 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 and see it there too, that the Thessalonians were those who waited for God's Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. There's the essence of the Christian faith. Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Are of very vast importance in this discussion. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures, and then he goes on in that great chapter to talk about how Jesus also was raised. You cannot be a Christian, you dare not call yourself a Christian if you do deny these two historical realities. You have no basis to take the name of Christ upon you if you do not affirm and believe and embrace. Historical atonement of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And and Paul puts it together and says, because of this, because we believe this, we have an answer for the, the, the dilemma of death. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is why it makes the death of a believer just like falling asleep. This is what gives the hope, this is the steadfast anchor. He goes on to say this, then, in the second half of that verse, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now here's the then clause. Here's the second half of that conditional sentence. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This second half of the, the condition is automatically true because of the first half it's certain. We do believe. That Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, or even so, and, and really you could insert this, these words here in the text. Paul doesn't add them, but it's assumed. Even so, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so we believe, we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Paul is connecting these two fundamentals of the faith belief in the death and resurrection of Christ, and you believe that, that automatically leads to another certainty. And that certainty is that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, this verb here is fascinating, and there's a lot of theology that rests on this one little verb in the Greek it's the verb ago, put in the future. Little one of the smallest little verbs in the Greek language, but incredible theology is, is is invested here, and and the idea means to lead or to bring. God will lead or God will bring with Jesus those who are fallen asleep. Now it immediately raises the question, and this is what we'll get into in future studies here, especially in chapter four the question is immediately raised, to where does God lead? With Jesus, these fallen asleep saints. To where? To where? Well, you basically have two options here. To earth or to heaven. And as we go through this text, we're going to establish this reality that it is to heaven. That in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, it is to heaven. It is to heaven. Those who had already passed away would in no way miss out on the marriage supper of the Lamb. They would in no way miss out on, on the blessings of the next eschatological uh, period or epoch in God's plan. They would in no way miss out on that because God will lead them, he will bring them with Jesus to heaven for that next stage. There is certainty here. Robert Thomas writes this The words God will bring point to a continuing movement heavenward after the meeting in the air. You can go down to verse 17, and, and there it speaks of that moment of the resurrection, how first. Those who died first receive their bodies, and then we who remain will receive our resurrected bodies, and then the movement is upward. The movement is in the same way as the ascension. It is upward into the clouds, and it is there that we meet the Lord in the air. And so when we look at that verse and we come back to this verse here in verse 13, that, or verse 14, that God will bring, the idea is a continuing movement to heaven. Until an arrival in the Father's presence, he continues. He says, since God the Father is in heaven, the verb he will bring indicates that the destination of the movement of Jesus and those with him in this verse are upward, not downward. At the moment of Jesus' return in the air, the company named will not move back to the earth, but toward the Father's presence in heaven. God will bring. God will lead with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Another commentator states, wherever, and this is Wanamaker, he says this, Whenever the ultimate, wherever the ultimate dwelling place of the people of God may be, the imagery of verses 16 and 17 is that of an assumption to heaven. They will be assumed to heaven in their resurrected bodies like those who remain alive will be until the coming of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, those are just some commentaries. I I don't know whether I'm convinced whether this movement is to heaven. Well, let me go back to the prayer of Paul. Remember that prayer that he prayed, that model prayer, when he prayed for that which was lacking. Remember that? We, we, We looked at that as Paul mentions in verse 10 of chapter 3, that the Thessalonians had a lack in their faith, And then before Paul starts to write about it, he first prays. And in that prayer, if you look back at chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, we read these words, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. And then verse 13, So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So here's the picture as Paul prays for what was lacking. He knew they were not yet where they needed to be. And he prayed for them that God would would use him to supply what was lacking in their faith. And part of this prayer was Paul knew he used to help them along the way so that in, in the end, at the moment of Jesus' coming, Jesus would be able to present them, what does the text say? Without blame, in holiness, before our God and Father. That is not an, an event that takes place on earth That is an event that takes place in heaven. And so coming back to what Paul is teaching here, he is is alleviating the grief of the Thessalonians because he's, he's convincing them through right knowledge, through careful doctrine and its application and implication. He's teaching them, look, those who have died in Christ, don't worry about them. They will not miss out on this wondrous event that is yet to take place Even though they've already died and their body is in the grave, don't worry. God will lead them with Jesus to that moment when they stand before God in their resurrected bodies, as Paul is going to go on to say, to receive the full reward and to experience complete holiness, not just in spirit, but in body before God. The Father, Thessalonians, you need not worry. You need not grieve as the rest. They will not miss out on anything. And one more thing I want to look at in this text before we wrap up this morning, and it's so precious. Notice that second half of verse fourteen. He says, "Even so, God will bring God will bring to him himself." And then you have this little prepositional phrase, with him, with him. Now, we know who the hymn refers to. It refers to Jesus. But I want you to see something here that is so very wonderful and we're going to see it so much more as we get further into this paragraph in chapter four. There is a, a, a transition that will occur for all of us that will occur for all of us in the future, all of us who are in Christ. It's the ultimate goal that we have. Our longing is to be with him. You see, our status right now as believers, if you're in Christ, you are mystically, we say mystically united with Christ. We can't really put our finger on it, right? It's it's a mystical truth that we are in Christ. That is our state right now. That is what we enjoy as believers. We have that union with Jesus Christ. But let me say this, there's something better. There is something better than just being in Christ. This is not all we are to long for. The great truth of being in Christ, this mystical union, will be changed to something incomparably better. And that is Actual presence. Actual presence with Jesus. And that's what we look forward to. And and what Paul is emphasizing here is not just actual presence in soul, but actual presence in your complete composition, in body and soul. This is what awaits us. Those resurrected bodies the glorified soul, the sinless soul, together. And in that feud, that that in itself is amazing. But what is infinitely greater is that we will exist in that state, not just in Christ, but we will exist with Him. Jesus said this in John 14, 2-3, and in that context too, Jesus is alleviating grief. And He does it with these words, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be. Be also. It's okay. We we experience sorrow, but our hope encompasses all encompasses all of this, and gives us that wonderful stability, wonderful perspective to deal with loss. What are some implications? Finally, number one. As we're going to see a lot in the sermons to come, eschatology is essential to our current well-being. Eschatology is essential. Paul says it is, and so I believe it too. Number two, the doctrine of the atonement has direct implications for the doctrine of future things. We cannot disassociate them. Paul specifically says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then it means we must believe certain things about the future. You can't separate and divorce those. And then finally, just a general idea here makes all the difference. And a final exhortation related to that. There may be all kinds of things going on in your life right now. Let me tell you that, and I hold this out to you, that diving deeper into God's Word and studying theology is the solution. It is not just some academic theoretical exercise. It will enable you to deal with the most profound issues in life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this historical situation. We're so removed from it, we don't understand all the details. But we understand enough through what is written here, we understand enough to see how your steward, your instrument, the Apostle Paul, was able to bring theology into this congregation doctrine about future things, just for an academic exercise, but to alleviate pain. And we see how precious that doctrine is. It ministers to us, as we know, it must have ministered to those Thessalonian converts. We ask that you give us a greater appetite for doctrine, that you would give us a hunger to study, to search these things out, that we would think the next thoughts and and not just leave it as a confession on our lips, but think through how these wonderful truths, these historic realities, these transcendent transcendent truths have an impact on the very basic issues of our living today. Help us connect those dots because we know that in doing that, our joy will be made full and our worship will be enriched as you demonstrate to us the great God and Redeemer and Deliverer that you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.